Well, we have made our way now through uh, the short book of Ruth, and we are making a transition back to the New Testament, and specifically to the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we will begin a new series in the Gospel according to Matthew, and it may take us months, possibly even years, to work our way through it. We may take breaks here and there, but we will eventually come to the end, we will discuss the great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples after his resurrection. We will, Lord willing, go through all of this and take our time and explore it and learn and grow. This morning our sermon passage is from Matthew chapter 1, specifically verses 1 to 17, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. <clears throat> This is God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab. And Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, and we are thankful for this portion of it this morning, which we will consider. And we ask, O oh Lord, as we have asked before, that you would conform us to the likeness of Christ by using your word. We pray that you would use it to transform us. And even, O oh Lord, something such as a, a genealogy, 
It is the very word of God, and so we pray, O Lord, that you would use it in our lives. Help us, O Lord, to love you more and more as a result of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we talked a little bit about this last week, we considered the closing verses of the book of Ruth. We considered that those last few verses which gave the genealogy of David. And we talked about how this is typically flyover country. This is the type of thing that when you are reading uh, the Bible, and especially when you find these genealogies in the Old Testament, uh, our tendency, my tendency, is to blow through them. They're names that don't mean a lot to us. It's very difficult for us uh, to keep track of what's going on and, and whom is whom. But this morning I would encourage you, and one of the reasons we're looking almost exclusively at the genealogy this morning is to encourage you to slow down, to read these as uh, the folks who were living uh, just after the time of Christ would read this genealogy. And to remember that uh, the audience to whom Matthew is writing, well, primarily Jewish, it did contain some Gentiles, but those Jewish people would be very interested in the genealogy of Jesus. They would have studied genealogies their entire lives. They would have been acutely aware of their own. They would have known who their ancestry uh, consisted of. And especially those who were of the priestly line would have been very and acutely aware of who their ancestors were. The priestly line, which was a matter of public record. But as we said last week, even one's inheritance was based on which tribe uh, you were a member of. And so it was very important Now, if you have any familiarity with the four Gospels, you recognize that there are some differences between them. And if you've ever looked at a harmony of the Gospels, you'll see that there's quite a a bit of correspondence between them, but also a healthy amount of difference. You know that Mark's Gospel is known for its very rapid pace, its brevity, uh, and what it has to say. Luke's Gospel is known for his orderly account of the way that he expresses the events in Jesus' life. He also is known for how well that his gospel flows into his sequel, the book of Acts. John is known for the number of events that don't occur in the other three gospels, the synoptics. And he's also well known for his emphasis on the divinity of Jesus Christ, the the preexistence of Jesus Christ. And Luke and John even have purpose statements. They, They put them right there for the readers to see what it is why it is that they're writing. Luke wrote his gospel, he says, so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught about Jesus. You find this in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And John says that he wrote so that those who read his gospel may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says this in John chapter 20, verse 31. Well, Mark's gospel doesn't exactly pronounce a purpose. It doesn't give a purpose statement the same way that Luke's and John's do. But you see, in the opening verse of Mark's gospel, he makes this clear declaration. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's genealogy consists of one person, Jesus Christ himself. Two, if you count his father. You know from the very beginning of Mark's, Mark's gospel what, he, what it is that he's trying to present to you uh, through the course of the 16 chapters. Well, Matthew's gospel is known for its Jewishness. 
Matthew's gospel contains at least 40 direct quotes or allusions to the Old Testament. He uses Old Testament scripture over and over again. He emphasizes the coming of the Messiah. He emphasizes the coming of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of these prophecies of the Messiah. And it should be stated that the gospel according to Matthew is technically an anonymous gospel. Nowhere does this book say whom the author is. But Papias, who wrote only 50 or 60 years after uh, this gospel was written, attributed it to Matthew. He said that it was Matthew who recorded these things in the Hebrew language. And it was widely held to be Matthew, the, the apostle of Christ, the tax collector, widely held in the church in the second century. Widely held that he was the one who wrote this gospel. And it is not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable simply to believe what the church fathers have to say about who wrote this gospel. The reality is none of the gospels name their authors. But we can trust that the early church knew what it was talking about. And just as Matthew didn't state that he was the the author, he also, unlike Luke and John, did not state his purpose for writing this book. But you can see from the very beginning, the very opening of his book, that he wants to demonstrate that Jesus fulfills all of the promises that were made to Abraham and to David. And so I would ask you to think about this as we consider this passage. Jesus is the true son of Abraham, which makes him true Israel. And he is the true son of David, which makes him the true king of Israel. Let me say it again. Jesus is the true son of Abraham, which makes him true Israel. And Jesus is the true son of David, which makes him the true king of Israel. Well, I've divided this passage very simply into two sections. The son of Abraham and the son of David. We'll consider this as we go along. It's very difficult. We're not going to go verse by verse this morning. It would be very difficult to do that. We'll consider this passage altogether, but in these two sections. Well, verse 1, the first verse of the first gospel of the New Testament says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, it would also be proper and and possibly more uh, uh, clear to translate this verse, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And why do I say it? It's because Matthew wants his readers to think back to that first book of the Old Testament. He uses the very same word, that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for the book of Genesis here. And so it would be proper to say, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And if you read, if you're able to understand Greek, you look at it, if you just flip the page back to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, it's captured very well in the English. It's almost identical to what is there in the Septuagint in, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, which gives the very first genealogy in Scripture. Well, just last week, as we said, we spent some time looking at the genealogy of the book of Ruth. And we saw, as we looked at this genealogy, that the the author of the book of Ruth revealed his purpose in the genealogy. The author wanted to show how God used Naomi's and Ruth's sufferings for his greater purpose in bringing David into the world. David was the whole point of the book of Ruth. The whole point of all that took place. The whole reason that Naomi... And Ruth suffered, and yet they never knew him. They didn't even know he was coming. 
And Matthew has a similar purpose in the way that he presents the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew is trying to say to the reader, he's trying to say that the primary purpose, really the sole purpose for Abraham's and David's existence was to bring Jesus the Messiah into the world. The whole purpose for their existence. And I think we can safely affirm that this morning. The only reason that Abraham was called out of Ur, the only reason that David was selected and anointed as king, was so that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, would be born in the flesh by the Virgin Mary. And there can be no greater purpose than this, because Jesus is the focal point of history. Everything in history was building up to his coming to earth. It was the whole point of history. And rather than Jesus depending on his ancestors, Matthew's genealogy shows that his ancestors depended on Jesus. His ancestors would have no meaning, no true meaning, no ultimate meaning, except for the fact that Jesus was born of them. Now, Jewish people believed that God brought all husbands and wives together by a divine act of providence. And so this this also fueled their study of genealogies. And because of this, when they read genealogy in Scripture, they would see them as a testimony to God's providence in their ancestry. They would look back at the hand of God. And we were able to do this as we went through the book of Ruth to see how God providentially ordered the events in their lives to take place, ultimately for the birth of David. Jewish people in the ancient world would do the same thing. They saw this as a testimony. It testified to God's provident hand. And Matthew's genealogy is intended as a testimony as well. It's a testimony to God's providence in bringing about the climax of history. The apex of history. The pinnacle. You can get no higher. This is the Himalayas of history that we're talking about here. His sovereign plan of salvation had come to fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, unlike Luke's genealogy of Jesus, which traces his ancestry all the way back to Adam, it is sufficient for Matthew to begin with Abraham. And verse 1, verse 1 flattens out all of history, doesn't it? It flattens it out. It draws a straight line from Abraham through David, through this time of Babylonian captivity, to Jesus. It's a straight line. Matthew wants you to see that Jesus is the true son of Abraham, the true son of David. That he is true Israel. And as we all know, the history of Israel begins with Abraham. It's who uh, Jewish people trace their roots back to. It is with Abraham that Israel is called out from the world as God's special people. And God calls Abraham, and at this point in the scripture, it's Abram, in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. And when he calls him out, he makes certain promises to him. He says that he will make a great nation of Abraham. He promises him that his his family, his nation, will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God promises Abraham these things, and then he renews those promises over the course of Abraham's life. Now, God made these promises thousands of years before Jesus was born. And by the time that Israel had made its exodus out of Egypt, 
that spent some 430 years in Egypt, by the time they made it out, they had grown to over a million people. The men alone were over 600,000. And the families of the earth were blessed just as God had made them into a great nation. The families of the earth were blessed through Abraham's offspring. Joseph was a great blessing to Egypt, to to the people of Egypt during that time of great famine. David was a blessing to many of the nations which surrounded Israel. People came to Solomon from all over the known world at that time to partake of his great wisdom. As Abraham's offspring, he was certainly a blessing to the people of the world. But ultimately, the extent of Israel's blessing to all the families of the world was limited. It had a limited scope. It didn't reach to the places that were unknown to the people at that time. And Matthew's genealogy points this out. It makes us known, it makes us aware of the limitations of this blessing when he has this section on the deportation under Babylon. You see, if the beginning of the reign of David marked the rise of Israel to prominence, to this regional, this known world prominence, then the division of the kingdom under Solomon's son Rehoboam marked the start of its decline. It was a very brief pinnacle in the history of Israel. And the exile of Israel to Assyria and of Judah to Babylon marked the rock bottom point for the people of God's history. And we read throughout the Old Testament, we read in Kings and in Chronicles, that their deportation was the result of their unfaithfulness to God, their unbelief, their idolatry. They pursued other gods instead of the true God. Well, Matthew deliberately includes this reference to the Babylonian deportation because he wants to show that the true blessing to the nations can only come through Jesus Christ. It was not truly fulfilled through the people who came before him. And this is why he mentions these four Gentile women in Jesus' genealogy. He mentions Tamar of Canaan. He mentions Rahab of Jericho. He mentions Ruth, the Moabitess. And he doesn't mention her by name, but he mentions the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Four women who were in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Four women who did not belong to God's people, Israel, and yet they were brought in to God's people. What does this show us? Why does Matthew do this and Luke does not? He wants to show us that God from all eternity has planned to bring those who are outside of his people into the fold. He wanted to show that all Israel is not true Israel. Spiritual Israel is true Israel. You see, God demonstrated the great blessing that he promised to Abraham's offspring that it would come through these four women. He allowed these four women to be in the ancestry of Jesus. And Abraham's nation, this nation that had come about for thousands of years after his death, was in great decline in every way by the time Jesus was born. It had been split apart. The two factions had fought against each other. They had been carried off into two separate countries who were far more powerful than they were. And at the time of Jesus' birth, they had been back in Israel, back in Jerusalem for over 500 years. But they spent all of that time being occupied by some nation or other. Abraham's children had been greatly reduced reduced in number and in stature. They were no longer a prominent kingdom. 
And so you see, Jesus came, and Matthew points this out, he came to fulfill these promises of God to Abraham that were not fulfilled by Abraham's people. He truly fulfilled them. He was Abraham's true son. And he showed it by his complete faithfulness to all that God commanded. And he was also the true blessing to the world because he brought salvation not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And this will be a theme throughout Matthew, even to the very end, where the disciples of Christ are are commanded to proclaim the gospel throughout the world to every nation. Well, now let's turn and look at the son of David. We've considered the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. And if Matthew's genealogy of Jesus shows that he is the true son of Abraham, it also shows that he is the true son of David. Just as he was the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham, so he is the fulfillment of all the promises to David. And we read last week from Samuel 7, uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. You can see it at the top of your bulletins where God tells David that he will establish David's kingdom from his offspring and that his throne will be established forever. Forever. Now keep that in mind as you read over the names of this list of the descendants of David. Matthew reminds his readers right away that even King David, David was an adulterer. Even he was sinful. Even he did not live up to God's expectations for him. He reminds us that Solomon was born as a result of David's infidelity. And even Solomon, who had great wisdom, who was greater than anyone else in his day, turned away from the Lord. He was seduced by all of uh, the things of the world and was drawn to other gods. In fact, if you read through these names, you are hard-pressed, as you do so, to find any names who were truly faithful. There were a couple The kings are graded in the Bible by how well they carry out God's commands of tearing down these high places, these altars, to idols. And many of the kings try, but they just don't quite do it all. They don't eradicate all of the altars. And some, like Manasseh, they rebuild the altars that their fathers had destroyed. And they worship there. Only two of the kings that are mentioned in this list, if you look beginning at David and go down to that deportation, only two of the kings are considered to be faithful to God, to do what was good in his sight, right in his sight. Hezekiah and Josiah, they were faithful to the Lord as David had been. But their reigns were still affected by God's people, by their, their their lack of faith. Their reigns were cut short. And while they seemed long by our standards, they weren't as nearly as long as David's reign and as Solomon's reign. They were cut short because Abraham's children, their people, did not keep God's commandments. And the unbelief of God's people, their pursuit after other gods, resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of Israel and Judah to foreign lands. And it resulted in their no longer being a true nation. Israel became the province of a series of occupying nations. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans... And the people, once they returned from their Babylonian captivity, they grew in their desire to have a king of their own over them. They wanted a Jewish king. They didn't want a puppet king like Herod turned out to be. 
They wanted someone who would free them from their bondage and return them to a truly independent nation, to cast off the oppression of the Romans. They were awaiting a new king like David, and the time was full. And so Matthew writes to tell his people that the true king has come. And that is why it, it, it's surmised or it's understood that he uses this description of 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the deportation, 14 generations from the deportation to Jesus. He's showing by this symmetry that the fullness of time has come. And that Jesus came at just the right moment. The one that they crucified, Matthew tells them, was the true Son of God. He is the long-expected Messiah. He was the promised offspring, not only of Abraham, but of David. It is Jesus' house that will be established forever. And we ultimately know that his house is the church. The church, which is his body. It is Jesus' throne that was established forever. Jesus sits as head of his church. He is king. He rules over the church and over the universe because of what he has done. He alone, out of all the sons of Abraham, out of all the sons of David, walked by faith. And Matthew will take, make this abundantly clear throughout the course of 28 chapters. But he sets it up for us right now in these opening verses. He says in this genealogy that the entire history of God's people has been to serve the purpose of Jesus Christ being born to the Virgin Mary. But it's just not, uh, not just the history of God's people that was working toward Christ's birth. Every nation on the face of the earth will be blessed by Jesus' kingdom. And all of this was possible. All of the blessing, all of the fulfillment of these promises was possible because Jesus is the Son of God. And that is why Matthew is so careful in what he says, or rather what he does not say, in verse 16. Throughout his genealogy, Matthew has followed this pattern. He says something along the lines of, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. But in verse 16, he makes a significant break. He says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, he who is called Christ. Matthew will follow this up. He'll make it clear in verse 18 and again in verse 23 that Mary was a virgin. That she did not conceive Jesus in the normal way. Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph. Joseph was his adopted father. And he was just a man. And he also, like Mary, was a descendant of David. But the father of Jesus is God himself. And therefore, Jesus is God. And this is why Jesus is the Savior of all of those who place their faith in him. Because he is both God and man. Conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. If he were not God, he could not save. He would have died forever on the cross. But because he was God, death could not constrain him. It could not contain him. It could not keep him down. If he had not been man, he could not have died for you and me, for sin sinful human beings. Only a man could die for another man and atone for his sins. Only God himself could atone for the sins 
of a vast number of hum- humanity. This is why, jo- uh, why Matthew says what he says about Jesus. Jesus is the true king. He is the king of whom all other kings in the world are mere types and shadows. And he came into the world to save his people from their sins. All that is required of those who would be saved is to believe. To believe in Jesus. To believe the words that Matthew has to say about him. To believe the words that he spends 28 chapters saying. That's all that's required. And that is why Matthew has written this gospel. Let us pray.